So he's warning about the spiritual immaturity of these Hebrews. He would have liked to have said more about Melchizedek, but he realizes that they're in no condition to hear it. And he's trying to impress upon them the need to grow and become more mature. It's not enough for us just to turn to the Lord initially. We really need to grow up, and we really need to uh, press forward. Um, there's, there's a lot to be said for the idea of growing as, an, as a part of being able to persevere. It's kind of like we don't stay at the same level. We either grow or we fall back. You know, can you imagine trying to ride a bicycle, and you decide to just stop on the bicycle? You know, that's much more difficult to keep that bicycle upright when you're stopped than when you're moving forward. And that's the way it is in our spiritual life. If we're pressing on and moving forward and growing, we will do much better than if we're just sort of trying to stay stationary. That's when we're going to fall. And he's warned them, he's really rebuked them in 11 to 14, and now he's sort of pressing them uh, to, to move forward now. So, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to the maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God, an instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. So, what should we do in, in the, this section? Press on from what? Elementary teaching. Yeah, the basic teachings that may be more comfortable and less challenging. We know them well. Perhaps we feel like we've got those down. Uh, well, then we need to leave those. Not leave them in the sense of, of abandoning them, but leave them in the sense of building upon them, going farther, going upward. And... Uh, he identifies some of these elementary teachings. Um, we might not have considered these quite so fundamental in some cases. Uh, he, he speaks of, of, you know, some of the basic attitudes that we need to have, like repentance and faith, which surely are key. He speaks of some of uh, the things that they would do, like the washings and the laying on of hands. And he speaks of some future events, like the resurrection and eternal judgment. And all of those things are things he considers fundamental or elementary. Maybe these were some things that they had known some about, even as Jews. You know, something that would not have been necessarily new material completely in their, in their Jewish, Christian, Jewish life. But, but these are things that they need to move forward and uh, go beyond. So, you know, that, that's what he's saying. You know, get rid of these, don't, don't keep staying with the basics. Challenge yourselves. Get deeper, move forward. And as Christians, if we just stay with the ba same basic teachings, we don't ever try to, to get any deeper, we're not going to do well. Thoughts and comments on that? What are washings? Well, that's a good question. Um, baptism might be a washing. There were a number of washings in Judaism. Um, so, I mean, those are, John's baptism might have been a washing. Those would be some of the uh, options, or perhaps he's, he's talking about the distinction, perhaps, between the Jewish washings and, and Christian baptism. Who knows? Did you all say washing? Is that what you said? No. I said baptism. Mm -hmm. It's really oh. the same word. 
Yeah, that's what a baptism is. It's a washing. <laughs> what about repentance from dead works? Is there any significance to the way it's stated? Maybe. I mean, people do quite a few things with that, but I'm not sure that that's any different than really what we would consider repentance itself to be. Repentance is repenting from our dead works. I mean, from the things that we do when we're dead. So I think that's probably what he's saying. It's just another way of just emphasizing repentance. Some people would try to make this into like trying to work out your salvation, you know, trying to earn your salvation, those would be dead works or whatever. But I suspect he's just saying repentance from the things you did when you were dead in sin. We, we often use it, repent of your sins. I don't know if that's even uh, more accurate or less accurate. You know, to repent is to turn away or to turn around or whatever. It's more to turn toward Christ than... So well, when you turn around, you turn away from one thing, you turn, turn to something, something else. else. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think in a sense you could use that either way. Yeah, so that would be the same. The dead work certainly is, is the same thing. Exactly. Well, and with the dead works here, would it be possibly related specifically to Judaism? That that religion was now dead and they repented from that religion, so to speak. That's possible. I mean, that's possible. I'm not I'm not confident about that, but that's possible. Yeah, let's check Chapter 6, first three verses. <coughs> Talk about repentance from dead works. Yeah, I mean... It may be that that's something specifically related to the, the deadness of Jewish works, but I do think that would also be a phrase that could be used for repentance from from the things you do when you're dead in sin. You know, those are dead works as well. So those would at least be two options. And certainly the turning to is the faith toward God. Sure. So that sure. fits with that. Yeah, turning away to me that turning away from sin and, and trusting in God makes a balanced set. Other comments and thoughts on these first three verses? Did you get other translational readings on that? Uh, no. What have you got? Well, the, the NIV reads, uh, uh, "Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death." like an over-translation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure, though, what the uh, original is on that. So. Oh, I guess acts that lead to death would be sin. I just don't usually speak up quite that way. <laughs> the original must have more to it than Maybe so. simply the word sin. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, it isn't the word sin, it's, but actually, death sounds kind of elaborate. But who knows? Uh, I'd have to look at the version. Other thoughts and comments on these three verses? He says, and this we will do as God permits. Meaning, we're going to move on if God permits? Yes. Okay. I think so. My Bible says, like on that note, this we will do if God permits. It says in another text, it reads, "Let us do if God permits." Yeah, that 
a lot of times the say the imperative and the indicative are the same same thing in the original, so it's just a matter of the translations translator's discretion. But I think he is saying, you know, we'll do this or let's do this, either way you look. You know, obviously it depends on God's, you know, permitting this and God's blessing to do that, but but you know, this is what he wants us to do. Let's move forward. You know, let's not go back to the elementary principles. Let's move on to maturity. Other thoughts on these first three verses? Right, well, how about four to eight? For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receive a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, it might be helpful for us to notice the pronoun shift here. In 11 through 14, he's speaking in what person? Second person. Second person, to you. In 1 to 3, you can really see it in 3, he's speaking in what person? First. First person, the we. But now in 4 and following, he's speaking in what person? third, about those who have once been. So he's not talking here so much about us or about you, but about those people. That distances this a little bit. He's not saying you, he's not saying us, he's saying them. And uh, I think that, that has to do a little bit with the strategy that he's using here and what he's saying. Now in 4 and 5, what have these people, what, what has happened to these people? Away. But but in four and five, what have they done? They've been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, been partakers, tasted of the good word. What do you think about all that in four and five? Why go into all that? To identify the group. Well, how could you have identified the group more uh, succinctly? By saying you. <laughs> or maybe by saying... Believers. Yeah, those who've been saved or those who believed or whatever. I mean, you know, this is a very elaborate description of disciples of Christ. But it's unusual to go into that much description to say all that. I mean, he's really uh, detailing all the the blessings and the experiences that they have enjoyed in Christ. So why tell us all that? Maybe because of what he said in the last chapter and how they need to learn a few things and this is kind of a teaching tool along along with with that. You know, explaining Tells them what they have. Some more details of just of believers. Yes. I think it's emphasizing the whole message that this is so much better than what you had before. 
it really helps you to see how rich and full the blessings in Christ are. If you throw this away, you're not throwing something away that's sort of uh, scant or, uh, you know, not very, not very abundant. Look at all of this. You know, they've once been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Partakers of the Holy Spirit tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. That's a lot. That's a wonderful uh, blessing to have all of that. And by contrast, what do they do in verse 6? Crucify. Yeah, and fall away. You know, you look at 4 and 5 versus verse 6. 4 and 5, you know, just a very uh, ample uh, depiction of all that they have. And then have fallen away. <laughs> you know, that's so empty. That's so, there's not much to say about that. That's so final, so dead, so barren. Um, they fall away. Well, if they fall away, what's the consequences? They can't be renewed. Yes, it's impossible the word impossible stands at the beginning of that sentence or that phrase, really. It's a very strong word. Impossible to renew them again to repentance. Um, it, people misread this a lot of times as it is impossible for God to forgive them. That's not really what he's saying. What's he really saying? It's impossible for them to repent. Yes. The impossibility is not the impossibility of God's forgiveness directly. That's sort of the conclusion of that, but the impossibility is of their repentance. Now, why would it be impossible for them to repent? Hearts have been hardened? I think so. I think he's describing those who have fully experienced all of God's blessings, and then they repudiate that. What would God use to draw those people who have experienced these blessings to the full and discarded them? There's not another gospel. There's not another Jesus to be sacrificed. There's not anything else to appeal to. It, it's, it, you know, people can get themselves in such a condition that they no longer have any sensitivity or any responsiveness to the appeal that God makes. Now, he is not, you know, talking about the past so much as he's warning them about the future possibility. In fact, he'll say in 9 that he's convinced of better things of them. So he's not trying to just shut the door on them. He's trying to say, this is what could happen. You need to realize what you're playing around with here. And when you do that, you really crucify the Son of God. And you put him to an open shame. You know, you, you shame the Lord and you reject the Lord and his sacrifice. What a horrible thing to do. It's not just what you lose out on. It's what you do to God when you, when you develop that hardened state. It's so dangerous for us not to take advantage of the blessings God has given, to, to enjoy them, to, to, to experience them, and then to turn our back on them, 
that has such a deadening, hardening influence on us. And it can just make us <clears throat> we don't have any more sensitivity. No more, no more spiritual, um, you know, responsiveness. Comments and questions on, on this section in 4 through 6. So they could never come back? Yes. I think it can be impossible for people to come back because they are so hardened, they're so, uh, their conscience is so seared that they actually reach the point of no return and just not have anything else that's going to move them. It's not, you know, this is an impossibility on their part, not God's part. God can, if, if somebody can repent, God can accept them, and he will. But sometimes people get so hardened and so dead that there's nothing we can do to get them to come back. And we've seen that. Have you seen people like that? That they, they were in Christ, they experienced the blessing of the Lord to the full, and, and everything you say to them, you know, they fall away, and everything you say, everything you do, nothing moves them. You know, that's the danger, is the danger, if we do that, you know, sometimes, well, you know, I'll do what I want now, but later on in life, I'll turn back to the Lord. Well, yeah, that's great. How do you know you're going to have a later on in life? You know, you might die, the Lord might return, but even if all that didn't happen, how do you really know that you're going to be more uh, tender and responsive to the message than you are now? I mean, it may very well be that you become so hardened that there never is a way to reach you again. I, I don't know that we can just necessarily just say that, you know, point out when somebody has reached that point. I think only really the circumstances in the rest of their life is going to show that for sure. But there are people who reach that point. And that's the danger. That's the problem. You know, you know it's not it's not a something to be toyed with because it, it can get to the point where there's just no possibility of them coming back. That's a very sobering warning. You know, it's kind of like I, I, I was thinking about this the other day in connection with with some, you know, things that I've I've been aware of, you know, you think about this with certain people even, but but you uh, you start abusing your conscience. You know, you know this is wrong, but you can do it. You know it's wrong, you can do it. You just continually defy what you know is right. And you just develop a habit of that. You know, you just continue in sin. You continue doing things that are wrong. You know how that works in your life. Eventually, how does your conscience feel? Fine. Better, yeah. Doesn't hurt so bad. Isn't that true? Eventually, it doesn't seem so wrong. I mean, and, wow, I mean, that's such a dangerous situation. We need our, we need our conscience to work just as well as it possibly can. We don't need to deaden any single nerve ending of our conscience. And and when we just continually abuse it, and kind of ride over that guilt, 
and because we our desire to do wrong, you know, outweighs the the pain of the conscience. Boy, I mean, we're just playing with fire there. I mean, we we need that conscience to be sensitive. Other thoughts, questions through verse six. What does it mean to have fallen away? Well, I guess to abandon uh, these blessings and turn away from them. Uh, he doesn't specify exactly what that means. Maybe he didn't intend to specify it exactly. You know, I, we know he didn't really think they were there. Although I think, you know, he's not just saying this uh, speculatively about you know, somebody in far off somewhere. I mean, I think he's saying this because there is a danger this could happen to them. But he, he doesn't really see them in this position yet. But, um, I, you know, it's probably maybe better not to specify that. I mean, this is a process, you know. And who knows when we reach that point of no return. I mean, it might be in some people's cases, it might be sooner than they would think. You know, because you might get to the point where you're on that path away from God with such determination and such hardness that even though you might not feel like, well, I'm not that far gone, maybe you are. If you end up being impossible to renew to repentance, you are farther gone than what you will. I mean, it's not so much what you do as your ability to turn back from that that's the problem. You could do some horrible things, but if you repent, you know, God will bless you. But if you get to that point where you can't repent, even though it might not seem that bad, then it's, you know, it's final. You think about seven and eight in connection with this. The ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. You know, you've got the ground that drinks in the rain, that, that you know, has the sun, you know, the nutrients in the ground, and it brings forth good vegetation, that's a blessing. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. The ground that grows the thorns and thistles, it receives the rain, it receives the sun, it has the nutrients, it has all the blessings. God has favored it. But it grows thorns and thistles. What's going to happen? It ends up being burned. What's, what good's a crop of thorns and thistles anyhow? And does that remind you of anything? Parable of the sower. Yes, and even more fundamentally, perhaps. What should that remind us of? <laughs> Something very fundamental. You reap what you sow? <laughs> oh, I'm thinking even more fundamental than that. Hell, I mean, it's... Yes, but I I'm thinking of the thorns and the thistles. You can have to help us. Genesis all alone. Genesis turn? The ground is cursed because yes, of sin. Yes. So <coughs> the thistles sort of represent the effect of sin. 
you know, on the ground. I think I think there's an allusion, probably, or an echo back to that. That uh, you know, in Genesis chapter three, uh, verses. Uh, 17 and 18, Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Well, you know, here's the ground that yields thorns and thistles. It yields the consequence and the fruit of sin. At least I see an echo there. Well, if you think that way, then it really brings everything full circle. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, what do we do with the blessings God gives us? I mean, you, you look at look at the Adam and Eve. Look at all the blessings they received, and what did they do? <laughs> they did the one thing God said not to do, and look at the consequences. And we're in the same. We've been privileged. We've been blessed so greatly. You know, we've received so much. Why do we insist on being rebellious? Why would we resist the will of God in our lives? You know, because everything depends on what kind of crop we yield. How we, how we correspond to the abundant blessings that God gives us. Comments and questions through verse 8. Do you think there's a direct tie between 4 through 8 and what he said in 1 through 3? In other words, is he reflecting on the potential result of those who don't grow up? Yeah, I think probably so, to a great extent. I mean, you know, the alternative to growing is falling away. Mm -hmm. You know, I said before you came in here, it's kind of like uh, riding a bicycle. You know, as long as you're moving forward, that works very well. What happens if you stop with your bicycle? It's very difficult to balance a stopped bicycle. It's so, you, you, you tend to fall. You tend to do much better when it's moving. And it's the same thing with our spiritual life. When we don't move forward, then our tendency is to fall away. I mean, it's kind of like we're either going to grow or die. We just, we can't have this mentality if I'm holding my own. You know, I'm just sort of kind of trying to hang in there and sort of trying to be a nice Christian. This is a growth thing. I mean, how much in the Bible talks about growth? In the New Testament, there is so much growing passages. And for us to ever think in terms of, well, I'm just trying to kind of tread water and, you know, kind of, kind of maintain the status quo. That, that would be a red flag. Anytime that's what our goal is, well, I'm hoping I just kind of, you know, Kind of, kind of go along smoothly, and you know, I don't really, you know, I'm hoping I don't do anything real bad. I'm just kind of trying to to stay where I'm at. We can't do that. And so, yeah, I think probably so. I think the alternative to, to, uh, you know, just this, if we, if we're stagnant, then then really it leads to falling. Thanks. <clears throat> Shane. In verses 12 through 14 of the previous chapter, chapter five, he talks about how being immature, you can't do anything. You can't teach if you don't know what you're teaching. You, you can't teach the Bible if you don't know anything about the Bible. And so really and truly, if we do, if we are stationary in our learning, we can't, number one, teach and we can't be a Christian because we don't know enough about the Bible to teach others, which is one of our, which is our reasonable service. Good point. 
and in verse 14, it talks about having your, ex- your senses exercised to discern truth and evil. And that only comes through growth. If you can't tell the difference, then you're going to fall. Absolutely. Good comments. Other thoughts? Well, 9 to 12. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right, and I think there's some, you know, good spirit on the part of the author here that he is convinced that these people will do better. Even though he's warning them, he doesn't really believe this warning will apply to them. I think he thinks the warnings needed to help them not need it to apply to them. You know, there are times when it is actually helpful to a person's spiritual well-being when others do believe they will take the warning and do well. It's kind of like with our children. Sometimes if you believe your children, a child is a total loser, he'll sort of live down to that. You know, if you have some hope and confidence in the child, Often they'll try to live up to it. And I think that's kind of the logic here. (coughs) He really does believe that this warning will be adequate. You know, he's saying some strong things, but he's convinced these brethren won't fit in that category. And he's convinced of that for one reason why. What is one? At least one reason why he doesn't think that'll happen. The nature of God. Yes. What's the nature of God? Just. Yes. And how does that help? He'll remember what they've done. Yeah. There are some good things about these Hebrews that he believes that God will remember and help them to persevere. Particularly, what have they done? Mister? Yes. They have served out of love. You know, uh, they, they've loved others. Uh, and, and notice how love requires work. You know, he says, your work and the love which you've shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So they have worked and they're continuing to work and that work of love is something that he believes God will recognize and and will bless them as a result of. But what they've got to do in verse 11 and 12 is show the same diligence to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. You know, they've got to have the faith and patience to inherit the promises. It is necessary that they persevere. But but they can, you know, he has confidence that the Lord will bless them with that perseverance, um, even based upon the love that they've shown toward others. Comments and questions? What is the full assurance of hope? Well, 
I mean, look at verse uh, 314. You know, he has, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Or go back even to 3.6. Christ was faithful to the Son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So I think the um, assurance of hope is really the, the confidence and the... Um, you know, the goal we have, we're convinced that if we persevere, God will bless us. And so that motivates us to continue on till the end. We have that confidence, we have that assured hope that we can trust the Lord if we'll keep persevering. Something. I mean, and is it, like, by continuing on, you gain assurance of what's going to happen and you eventually gain what you are hoping for. I mean, like, if you're... I, I'm trying to think of a good example, but if you're doing something, some activity, and you get some result, but you don't know that you're going to get to the end. But if you keep going, you become more and more certain of the Well, that may, I mean, there's probably some truth to that. I'm not sure if he's saying that as much as just saying... You know, he, he wants them to... The, the, if we're going to persevere, we've got to have assurance and hope. You know, who's going to persevere if they don't think they're going to make it anyhow? If they don't think God's going to... I mean, you know, I don't think you can really trust the Lord. And he said there'd be that, but I don't, you know, I doubt if it really happened. Well, is that going to give you any any conviction to persevere in difficult times? Absolutely not. I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, do you work for a company that you're not really sure they're even going to pay you? What kind of work do you do for that? You know, you know, you wouldn't do that. I mean, it's just, it's hard to motivate yourself. Um, but he wants them, so they, they have to have this fully assured hope to persevere into the end, and when they persevere into the end, then they realize, they, they actually gain what they have the assured hope in. I think as you mature, you have more confidence in God and his abilities to deliver you and to fulfill that hope. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that probably is the case. I think you probably do come to have greater hope. Even your closeness to God gives you more confidence because of your relationship with Him. Because of your experiences with Him. I and think that is confidence in your own ability to keep going, too, I've made it this far, I can make it to the end. Or maybe better your confidence in the Lord to give you the strength to keep going to the end. Yeah. Other thoughts? The idea of having a clear vision came to mind. You know, you, this person uh, has an unimpeded vision of where they're going and, you know, following up from Verses 4 and 5, maybe they've tasted it. You know, they can taste um, the future in a sense of that anticipation and that confidence. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we do come to uh, have greater and greater expectation. You know, we look forward to it more and more. I mean, even the act of hoping almost gives us greater and greater eagerness. Other comments? <clears throat> Good morning. Hey. Uh, 
right, Hebrews uh, 6, verses 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he would swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will, I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for the confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, then he went to of his counsel and confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. You said through 29. Right. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters a presence beyond, behind the veil. Where the foreigner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You look at the contrast between the terrible fate of those who fall away in 4 through 8 with the great confidence and hope that we can have in the Lord if we're if we're continuing faithfully with Him here. You know, He's been talking about uh, their hope in verse eleven, their faith, and here's really the basis of that. I mean, here's the the foundation that gives them the right to have this hope, and what's it based on? Promise to Abraham. Yes. Now, when God makes a promise, what do you know? Absolutely. You can count on God's <laughs> trustworthiness. Has there ever been a time God has lied? So, God's promise is something that's steadfast. But God did something more to get give assurance than make a promise. What did he do? Yes. He swore by himself that he would bless Abraham and his descendants. Um... And, well, why did he swear by himself instead of by somebody else? <laughs> yes. Really, there's nothing else you can uh, swear by if you're God that would give any greater assurance than swearing by yourself. Uh, but between the promise and the oath, you have two strong reassurances that you can count on God's promise to be fulfilled. Um... You know, and so, with this confidence, with this hope, with this assurance, we have something that gives us stability and, and I don't know, just more, more of a grounding to persevere. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in life. There's a lot of discouragement. There's a lot of things that are disheartening. There's a lot of, you know, things that just make you maybe, humanly speaking, want to throw in the towel and give up. But we've got this strong reassurance and confidence and hope from the Lord that keeps us moving forward and keeps us, you know, sure of God even when things don't go well. We've got God's word, we've got his oath, we've got a hope that's like an anchor. I really do think our hope is key to our Christian life. We often see put together the faith, hope, and love. And not just in 1 Corinthians 13. There's a lot of passages that do that. 
But I think for a long time, I sort of thought that hope was kind of the weak stepsister there. You know, I see faith and love. Those are important, but hope, you know, and, you know, it's not a big deal. But I think it is a big deal. Because our hope is so central to our being able to persevere. You know, without strong hope, I just don't think we really try very hard. I think that becomes just a key thing in our relationship with God is that we have that reassurance of the blessings that God has for us. Comments and thoughts on all that? So the promise that he made to Abraham is also a promise to us? Sure, because we are the descendants of Abraham. You know, it's really the promise of blessing through Christ. Mm -hmm. So, yes. I never noticed that, at least it looks like, that the anchor is anchored within the veil. Yes. It's not anchored anywhere else. But why would it be anchored within the veil? That's where God is. I think so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a hope anchored in the Lord Himself, in His very Word, and you can't separate God's Word from God's being, because God's absolutely consistent. What He says is always absolutely a reflection of who He is. So if God made the, the gave his word and made the oath, then this hope is really anchored behind the veil that is in the Lord himself. This, our, our promise, our hope, is as sure as God. And we've even had a forerunner go behind the veil for us. And that, of course, is Jesus, who is the one who sort of opened the way, given us access to God, which is a theme of Hebrews. And that brings him back around to Jesus having become a high priest forever according to the order, order of Melchizedek. All of this has sort of been a digression complaining about their uh, spiritual slowness, dullness. Now he's coming back around and he's going to talk about Melchizedek anyway. <laughs> so comments and thoughts here on chapter 6. We'll look at this whole idea of Melchizedek. I think uh, probably this is one of the more intriguing things people find in uh, Hebrews. It is one of the more difficult things. And yet I think the more you see in this, the more powerful it is. Um, I guess let's go ahead and read 1 to 10 and try to see the whole picture. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. 
And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham, and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. But he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. We probably ought to go back and look at the key text dealing with Melchizedek. Genesis 14 is when there had been a coalition of kings that had conquered Sodom and taken Lot and others captive. Abraham got 318 men together and went and rescued Lot and the people of Sodom, brought back the spoils that had been taken. And in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of these kings, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham. And then, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God, be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your heads. He gave him a tenth of all. Now, that's all that we know historically about Melchizedek. <laughs> There's not a whole lot to go on, but the Psalms picked up on that. Psalm 110, uh, you have Melchizedek in history, Genesis 14, Melchizedek in prophecy, that's Psalm 110. This is a Psalm where in the first three verses, you see Jesus as king, and then in verse 4, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. So Melchizedek in history, Genesis 14, Melchizedek in prophecy, Psalm 110, and Melchizedek in fulfillment, Hebrews 7. And so the prophecy had been that Jesus would be a priest like Melchizedek after his order. There's a lot that we need to say about all this, but maybe the best place to start would be with the idea of the parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus. Because what he's doing is to draw <coughs> sort of an analogy or a type, anti-type relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus. So what are the, some of the things that you see in Melchizedek that remind you of Jesus? King and priest. King and a priest. He was king and priest. <coughs> That's very good. How many king and priests do we have in the Old Testament? Yeah. Why didn't you have more than that? Because you had the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Levi. So you couldn't be a member of both tribes, so you couldn't hold both offices. You're exactly right. God legislated it in such a way that after the law of Moses, there really wasn't a way to mix them because you were either the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, or of Judah. The kingly tribe, you remember any descendants of Judah uh, who really tried to mix the kingship with the priesthood? Uzziah. Uzziah, what did he try to do? He tried to burn incense. Yeah, he went into the temple to burn incense like a priest. Guess what happened to him? He became a leper until the day of his death. God didn't like the idea of uniting kingship and priesthood in general. 
Now, there was a prefiguring of that in Zechariah 6 when Joshua the high priest was crowned and he was sort of a symbol for the coming, you know, priest king, Jesus. In fact, the word Joshua is really the word Jesus. So that is a lot in Zechariah 6. But that was more of a symbolic thing. Joshua didn't really reign as king. He was just crowned to prefigure Jesus. Really the only acting king priest we know about in the Old Testament was Melchizedek, and so he's a perfect analogy to Jesus in that sense. What else parallels to Jesus? Well, it talks about Melchizedek being the king of righteousness and the king of peace, which are appropriate titles for Christ. They are. Why would we say he was the king of righteousness? Christ or Melchizedek. Christ or Melchizedek, which we don't. Melchizedek. Isn't that what his name is? That's the name. Melch is the, the king, and Zedek is righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness. And of course, Jesus is <laughs> king of righteousness. Why would we call him king of peace? Salem is peace. Salem is the shalom. It means peace. So his name meant king of righteousness, and he was king over Salem, which meant peace. So he's both king of righteousness and king of peace. That reminds you of Jesus. What else? He had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Wow! You mean he neither was born nor died? Not recorded when he lit, when he when, when he was born and when he died. Yes, I think what he says uh, when he says, "But made like the Son of God" in verse three, the way the Scriptures present the Melchizedek story makes him like the Son of God because uh, he appears on the stage of Scripture with no mention of the beginning or end of his priesthood. The only time we ever see him appear in Scripture, he is priest. You don't see him get to be priest, you don't see him leave the priesthood. He, and so the way his story is told, he sort of remains there as priest the only time we ever see him. He, there's no record of his lineage, you know, of his, even of his birth, but for the Levitical priesthood, lineage is everything. Here's a priest that just sort of appears with no emphasis on his pedigree whatsoever. In Melchizedek's case, it was that these things like the beginning, the end, the lineage, and so forth were not recorded. In Jesus' case, they don't exist. He didn't have a beginning and end, you know, a genealogy and so forth. So the only time we ever see Melchizedek in the Bible, he is priest. We don't see him retire. We don't see a succession. And the manner in which the scriptures present Melchizedek <coughs> fit him to be a shadow of Jesus who was, in fact, a perpetual priest. Melchizedek is a perpetual priest by the way the scriptures present his story. They just show him as priest the only time we ever see him. Jesus is a perpetual priest because he is a perpetual priest. He never, he never ends his, his priesthood. So that way of the scriptures depicting Melchizedek's story makes him a parallel to Jesus. Does that make any sense?
Do you have any other comments about the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus in the sense of showing the parallel, showing how Jesus is a Melchizedek type person? What he does with this is beautiful. He, he goes from that to making some tremendous points that are really fairly deep in, in all of this. What he does is to say, all right, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now, what was the relationship between Abraham and Levi? Great-grandfather. So, where was Levi when Abraham, Abram met Melchizedek? He wasn't even a twinkle in anybody's eye. No, his genes were still in Abram's body. <laughs> you know, because this is before Abram bore Isaac. <laughs> so, essentially, Levi's still inside of Abraham, the germ of Levi or whatever. That's kind of the concept that he's developing here. So if he can prove Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, clearly Melchizedek is greater than Abram's great-grandson. <coughs> and Levi's the father of the priesthood. So how does he prove Melchizedek greater than Abraham? He blessed it. Who blessed whom? Abraham blessed Melchizedek. No. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now, how would that show Melchizedek greater than Abraham? Because the person who is greater blesses the person who is less. Yes. That's the idea. You know, Melchizedek sort of had the superior role blessing Abraham. You know, uh, like as if Abraham needed a blessing from Melchizedek. You almost get that impression when you read the record that Melchizedek is like this, you know, almost... Um, I don't know, this superior, almost fatherly being coming out and blessing, give, giving his blessing on Abraham. But even more than that, what shows Melchizedek greater than Abraham? Abraham gave the tithe yes. to Melchizedek. Yes. Now, there's a lot in that, if you look at it. You would assume that the lesser pays the tithe to the greater, just in general. But I want you to look at how he records this in verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Saying he's the patriarch is emphasizing what? The whole lineage. Yes, he's the forefather that leads to Levi, the leads to the priest. Then look at verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now that's interesting because the Levites received a tithe from some people. But what's different about the Levite's tithe and Melchizedek's tithe? Well, 
was commanded and one was voluntary. Yes. Abraham just saw the superiority of Melchizedek and gave him the tithe. The Israelites were ordered to give the tithe to Levites and what else is different? Who do the Levites get the tithe from? Their brethren. Abraham wasn't a brethren to Melchizedek. You know, there wasn't the family kinship, and yet he still gave that tithe. So I think he's showing uh, very uh, deeply in connection with this tithe that Melchizedek's greater than Abraham. And clearly the fact that Melchizedek blesses Abraham shows Melchizedek is greater. And so he says in verse 9, And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So really, if you want to stop and say it, it's like Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now that's getting a lot out of Three verses of Genesis and a verse of Psalms. Does that tell you anything? There's a lot in them. Yes! I think it tells you there's a whole lot in the Bible. I mean, you know, we haven't ever looked at that. And ever even thought through any of that. We would have seen Melchizedek as one of these sort of you know, minor characters and kind of wondered what he was doing stuck in there. And yet, once we see it, there is great depth and design in that. You wonder how many other three-verse sections are there in the Bible that have a whole lot more in them than we've ever been able to mine. That ought to just whet our appetite to start seeing more deeply. And it just, it gives us sort of a model. You know, there's a lot to look for. Keep thinking. Keep studying. Keep keep deepening your understanding. Well, and it also says that there's nothing insignificant. So we should not gloss over anything. Good point. You know, it's not like the Bible just records a lot of extraneous details just because the author is going on and on. <laughs> you know, God had a reason for everything he put in there. So if we don't know the reason, we just need to keep studying to where we finally figure it out. Maybe even more than one reason in a lot of cases. Now, you see the overall point he's going to drive at. If, if Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, then Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood, and why do they go back to the inferior priesthood when they've got Jesus' priesthood? That's where he's really going. Anything you want to say through verse 10? So, does verse 5 imply that the Levites were greater than their brothers? Or yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they've got a higher role. They have a closer relationship to the Lord. I would say it does. <clears throat> the way in which they were chosen, I think, lends credence yeah. to that. Mm-hmm. Verse twenty-five. 
other thoughts? Yes. I've got a kind of a question slash comment. Um, a teacher, we, at our church, we were going through Hebrew, and when he got to Melchizedek, he believes that this is Christ, coming, that Christ, how you pre-incarnate, something like that, and was, and he also used the same scripture back in, in Daniel, that Christ had come back before, in the fire furnace, that Christ saved, <coughs> Christ saved, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't think it's right because he says like the Son of God. Right. I think it's wrong. I think he's presenting Jesus as a parallel figure to Melchizedek. Um, not Jesus as Melchizedek. Uh, I, I think the whole thing is based on the analogy between Jesus and Melchizedek. So and, uh, I uh, I'm still not 100% convinced that some of these pre-incarnate Jesus sightings are. Maybe they are. I know everybody else thinks that. I'm still haven't completely come around. What was it? It says, like in Daniel, it says... One like the Son of the Gods. Yeah, like one of the Son of God. It would say the Son of God, you would think. Instead of saying, you know... It's just saying it looks like a divine figure. Yeah, that's really what that's saying. The question is, who's the identity of that divine figure? I always thought it was an angel. Yeah, um, 99% of the people would say it's Jesus, uh, maybe. But I'm just not totally convinced it's not an angel. I don't know. I struggle with some of that. He's the only guy in our church that believes that. So I, thought I, was like, I never heard that before, so I was like... If he's the only guy, he must be wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> Where did you get that from? Well, doesn't he also compare Jesus' kingship to David's kingship? So sure. Think of David as being Jesus incarnate. Right. Yes. I agree. I think the problem people have is with verse 3. You know, without father, without mother, without genealogy and all that. I mean, it's sort of like, well, if he didn't have a father, mother, etc., he must be Jesus. But I think the point is, he's without it in the record. Not that he physically didn't have a father or mother. Everybody does. You know, Melchizedek did too, but not in the record. I think, I think it's a failure to understand what he's saying there that leads people to think he actually was Jesus. Other comments or questions? All right, how about 11 to 14? Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Okay. Now, there are some implications of this whole idea of the priesthood being changed. Um, the change of priesthood implies that the there was not perfection 
through the Levitical priesthood or in the law. If there had been, you wouldn't have needed another order of priests. And if you've got another order of priests, you necessarily have a change in the law because the priesthood and the law are bound together. The law sort of depends on the priesthood and the sacrificial system. So if the priesthood's been changed, there's, there's a change in the law. And you particularly see that in that if Jesus is a priest, Jesus came from what tribe? Judah. Well, what did the law say about priests from Judah? Nothing. If the law said nothing about priests from Judah, what does that tell you about priests from Judah? Yeah. The law does not authorize priests from Judah. If the law says nothing, then we can't do it. Silence prohibits. This is an interesting text along that line. Would you say, well, the law said nothing about priests from Judah, so it's okay? The law didn't tell you not to have priests from Judah. No, what you say is the law didn't say anything about priests from Judah, so you can't. The law didn't give you permission to have priests from Judah. It's that whole argument from silence or not question. Yeah. And it goes back to what you said before. There was a guy from Judah that tried to be a priest, and how he got take that. He didn't like it. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, God said priest from Levi. For anybody to come along and make a priest out of Judah defiles that law. Yet Jesus was a priest from Judah, so what does that tell you about the law? Changed. It was changed. Because otherwise, he'd never be able to be a priest. If the law said nothing about priests from Judah, under that law, a priest, a person from Judah cannot be priests. If God says nothing about something, we cannot act. The silence is forbidden territory. That's a powerful point about that. And he's saying then that we don't just have a change of priesthood, we have a change of law also. Because you can't change the priesthood without changing the law. Expressio unius exclusio alterius. The expression of one excludes all others. I didn't know that. Is that a legal thing? Legal maxim. Wow. That's cool. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Do they really mind by that? <laughs> <laughs> On occasion, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, because it was expressed that the priesthood came from Levi, you know that the priesthood come, could not come from any other. That's interesting that there is actually a specific, you know, principle in law saying that. That is exactly what we understand in logic. You know my illustrations about that. You may not have heard those, but some of you have. But like, I think I got these from Autumn McKee or somebody, but, you know, about the... Uh, the guy who gets sick and he goes to the, the, the doctor and the doctor diagnoses him with some disease or other and sends him to the pharmacist with a prescription. And he starts taking the medicine and he gets, gets sicker and sicker and sicker. He goes back to the doctor and the doctor suspects some things and calls the pharmacist and says, you know, what did you put in that, that medicine? 
And the pharmacist says, I put in drugs A, B, and C. And the doctor says, but I only prescribe drugs A and B. And the, and the pharmacist says, well, look at the prescription right here. It doesn't say a thing about not putting C in. Well, now, what about that? You know, we would understand. Or well, what about the illustration you use? I always love this one. Uh, about the guy who calls up the Sears catalog store, store and orders a pair of shoes. And a few days later, some big truck backs into his driveway and two strong men get out and open the back door. And they come carrying this great big box up to the door, huge box with a little small box on top of it. And the guy opens the door and they said, here's, you know, this is from Sears. And he's like, what is this? Well, it was actually a riding lawnmower and a pair of shoes. <laughs> and so you call immediately to the catalogs department and, you know, they put you on the phone with their order people or whatever. And, and they pull up your order on the computer and you say, I, you know, I can order riding lawnmower. And the guy said, well, I'm looking at your order right here and doesn't say anything about not delivering a riding lawnmower. <laughs> Well, you know, you don't, you order a pair of shoes, it doesn't give them any right to send you a riding lawnmower. You know, we understand that in everyday life sort of things. It comes to God and we're like, well, God didn't say not to sprinkle infants. God didn't say not to play Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs on an organ. You know, etc. Well, he didn't have to say not to. He didn't tell us to do it. You know, I don't have to say, don't plan, please don't deliver a riding lawnmower. <laughs> you know, please don't put in drug C. <laughs> you know, you didn't have any right to do it. And that's actually a legal maxim, so. Cool. I have to write that down sometime. <laughs> All right, other comments and questions about anything through verse 14? Fifteen and nineteen. <coughs> this is clearer still. Another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law, a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, this tells you something about the difference between Jesus' priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. What's the difference you see here? Well, how are the Levitical priests chosen? According to a law. Physical who they're descended from, whether they have the appropriate characteristics otherwise. Yeah. Basically, your ancestry determines whether or not you're a priest or not under the law. And did that always make for outstanding priests of excellent character? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you think of any examples of questionable character serving as priests? Hophni and Phineas. Hophni and Phineas. Or how about uh, Annas and Caiaphas? <laughs> you know, I, you know, and I realize some of those weren't even chosen by the uh, law of succession. Although I think Annas maybe was uh, would have fit in that category. But but you know, it just didn't lend itself always to people who were spiritually fit because it was 
basically based on the law of physical requirement. How was Jesus chosen? According to the power of an indestructible life. Yeah. Based on who he is, his inherent nature, not fleshly but indestructible, not a commandment but life, not the law but power. The law of physical requirement versus the power of an indestructible life. Jesus had the the quality to be priest. The the Levitical system you just had to have, you know, the the ancestry, the the family tree to be priest. Questions and comments through verse seventeen. That's matching up law and life. I matched up law and power. Law, law and power. Physical and indestructible requirement and life. Yeah. You might be able to do it some other ways, too. Um, I don't know. Uh, so I'm not sure I would just, you know, I'm not necessarily just trying to, to live by that matching up. But the whole thing, it just really shows the contrast. All right, maybe this would be a good place that we should uh, stop so... I can get going, and you all can, and we'll just pick up 18 next week. You want 18 and 19? That was a good, good cost, though. I appreciate you all being here.